Should I say some stuff like I'm hanging out with Scott Wolf in the studio next to my washing machine, my dryer? No. Okay. This is Capital. You're listening to All Strings Considered with Scott Wolf. Acordes no cavaquinho, palavras no papelzinho. Contigo vamos lá, 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 lá. Hey everyone, and welcome back to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf, and today we'll be talking to my friend Capital and hearing some of his great music from a bunch of his projects. First of all, I do want to apologize for the long, long, long delay in putting out a new All Strings episode. I'm blaming it on construction at our apartment, meaning I couldn't use the studio, and I had the great honor of substitute teaching the great students of Adam Del Monte and even a day of Scott Tennant students at USC in the last few months. So it's been annoying in the first instance and awesome in the other, but either way, it didn't leave me any time to edit a new podcast for you all. And hopefully I'll have some time to catch up in the next week or so. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories. And by Audible.com. To get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com slash allstrings. There are over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Speaking of USC, Capital and I met while both attending DMA programs there. Capital in the studio guitar program, and myself in the classical, of course. And we were pleasantly able to combine our two worlds with this great project we called the World Guitar Ensemble. Capital has some really killer classical guitar chops, and these days he plays a huge variety of music on the nylon string guitar. I most often see him doing Brazilian music from samba to pop to funk to whatever, and he somehow magically evokes all those styles on the guitar while usually he sings. It's great stuff, and so I want to start off with his take on how he synthesizes and evokes those styles when he's only got the solo guitar to work with. I, I am very grateful that I started playing some nylon guitar, classical guitar, when I was in like junior high. As I went on to do lots of other styles, and I didn't ever follow the the path to being a real like classical guitar player guy who knows all that rep and stuff and performs that stuff at that level with that kind of technique. Having a foundation in that, as I went into other styles, I found that you could use the nylon guitar really well to express all kinds of different kinds of rhythms, basically because of the independence of voices, the ability to, to play a bass line and chords at the same time and stuff. So, I mean, that's great in jazz music, instead of just doing this, which is what you are kind of stuck with if you're strumming, doing things like that. You can add some kind of a bass line in. So suddenly the groove, you feel more of the beat because you've got, you know, the nylon string guitar. If you have a little bit of that independence, then you can also improvise off of chords. So if I'm playing a Brazilian song and I go to take a solo, might have these changes like this. So then I can take a solo. So I just play the same changes. I get a melody out of it. As long as I keep my thumb going on the beat, then you can make melodies pretty easily by just playing notes that you can reach from the chord. So if I have a C chord, I can just be like... You know, all that stuff is right there at your fingertips when you're playing a chord voicing. You find basically as you just alter the top note, then suddenly melodies come out of it. So you just grab all the chords that you know, and you have three or four different notes you could stick on top, and that's enough <laughs> to play through changes and make something that kind of flows and it sounds like polyphonic improvisation, which sounds like cooler than it even is. It's not even that hard. Same thing though with like pop music and funk beats and stuff. 
One of the songs I play is by this guy Javan called Samurai, and this is not at all the way it's played on the record by the guitar. There's a whole bunch of different elements on the CD. But I can kind of approximate it. You know, you can get kind of a bass snare, bass snare thing going with thumb fingers, thumb fingers. So I could play this song and be like this. So you, it's great to have a nylon string guitar and be able to separate your thumb from your fingers, basically, because you can express the whole groove. If I was just sitting there with a the guitar, an electric guitar, and being like this... I mean, that's cool, but nobody's going to be dancing because you need the bass. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, if you get out there and you're like... You got the bass and the syncopation together, and that can get a whole room dancing. So speaking of the nylon guitar in the pop realm, I want to play you one of my favorite songs from Capitol's solo album, Floats on Flat Tires. The song's called Leda, and starts off with a great nylon guitar riff, and you might think Capitol's singing on here reminds you a little bit of Prince.
I know, good song, right? So Leda, yeah, this was a song I wrote in Brazil, and it's kind of a blues song, but it's very influenced by um, the guitar of Garoto and uh, and some of the, the harmonies and stuff that I hear in Ginga and, and those Brazilian harmonies. So it's it's kind of a good snapshot of me, really, because I came from playing blues and rock guitar and stuff, and I had a little bit of classical technique that I then brought into the Brazilian thing in jazz. So it's got it's got kind of all the elements that make it kind of like a capital song. It's got the blues and the Brazilian thing side by side, and I'm trying to sing my best like Prince. <laughs> I think it totally does. So you might be asking yourself, what's with this guy named Jonathan Patterson calling himself Capital? At least I know I did. And it turns out there's a pretty interesting story behind it. I got that name being in a hip-hop band. That was with a Japanese MC, but we were living up in Berkeley. Uh. So we had this uh, project that we were doing where it was just the two of us, but we wanted to make it seem like there was like 25 of us. So we came up with all these different aliases for, you know, every different aspect. And my guitar playing alias was Capital. So that's how I was credited as a guitarist on that recording. And then that recording did really well in, in Japan and we, got, and we went there a lot. And so instead of reinventing the wheel, I just stuck with that name for other projects. Can we hear some of that album? Hip-hop and guitar don't usually go, unless it's the Beastie Boys, they don't usually go. Well, that was the thing. We were trying to um, create kind of a, a live funk vibe to the beats. Even though the beats were programmed with a Kurzweil sampler, we had live guitar and bass on it just to make it feel kind of more alive. Mm. What was that called? Who was the DJ? So the MC was the main guy. His name is Shingo Two, and our band was called the Terracotta Troops. <laughs> and um, the album was called Ryokuo Shoku Jinshu, which is a, like a play on words in Japanese. Um, o Shoku Jinshu means you know, technically the scientific term is mongoloid, which basically is the technical okay. scientific word for Asian race. And okay. then ryokuo shoku is a kind of vegetable classification, like the healthy stuff. Okay. So it was a play on words. Ryokuo shoku jinshu means like the healthy kind of person. Nice. And it's a play in that? Well, because it combines ryokuo shoku the end of that word is Oshoku. Uh -huh. And then the other one, Oshoku Jinshu, the beginning of that is Oshoku. So it kind of like sticks them together. Nice. So what was that during your undergrad, master's? That was during the master's. So I went to USC and then I went to UC Berkeley. I went to USC for my undergraduate. And then the next year I went to UC Berkeley for ethnomusicology. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, I was working in a consulting company that did like Japanese translation stuff. And that's where I met this MC Shingo, Shingo 2. So kind of while I was working on my master's degree, which was in Japanese pop music, basically, I was also involved in this band, so it was really cool. And then you went straight from the master's to Japan, maybe because of some of these connections? So we, we traveled to Japan a lot with that project, and I always wanted to go back and live in Japan, but I had a lot of things going on in the Bay Area. So that master's program was two years, but I lived there for eight years before I moved to Japan. I was just kind of looking for the right time, and uh, the right time came. Hmm. I loved being in the Bay Area because there were, there were so many great musicians from around the world who kind of coalesced there. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got into Brazilian music and stuff too, because there were some really masterful Brazilian musicians in the Bay Area and, and some of them great educators. So I studied with them, but also other styles. You know, there's a place there called La Pena, which is a venue kind of set up by some exiled Chileans who came up during the Pinochet regime. And so they had a lot of you know, like Andean music, Argentinian and Chilean kind of like folk stuff and Nueva Cancion, the folkloric stuff. Nueva Cancion is very political, right? Yes. And some of those artists, you know, who had been in Chile at the time, being political activists, uh, ended up kind of in, in this place. And 
it was a really cool place for all types of folkloric Latin music. Mm. And right next door to it was a pub called the Starry Plow that had like traditional Irish music. And, you know, up at, up the road a little ways was the Ali Akbar Khan College of Indian Music. It was just a really cool place to be for world music. Sounds fantastic. And then Brazilian music is the one that actually ended up kind of grabbing your... Yeah. So when I was in my master's program at Berkeley, there was a Brazilian woman who was also working. You know, we would do like show and tell projects in our analysis classes and I would bring in some Japanese pop music and she would bring in some Brazilian stuff. And every time I was like, man, that's so much better than the music (laughs) I'm working on. That is so good. So anyway, that kind of drew me in and then, you know, just meeting and working with these masterful Brazilian musicians like Marcos Silva and Ricardo Peixoto and just different guys up there in the Bay Area. Um, there was such a resource for learning about it and playing it that it was pretty easy to, to fall in the deep end and stay, stay in. And that's where also Brazil Camp is? Yes. So Brazil Camp, you know, there's kind of a whole community up there. And some of those are those people in the community are the ones who sort of really started Brazil Camp. Now Brazil Camp has grown much bigger than that. And a lot of those original people aren't even teaching there anymore. Pretty much all the teachers come up from Brazil. It's like the biggest Brazilian festival, essentially, on the on the West Coast, maybe. It's cool. I mean, definitely big in terms of how awesome it is, not in terms of how many people are there. And it's not like it's a concert series. Um, it's kind of an amazing, you know, little secret that those who know about become instantly devoted and, uh, the ones who don't know just kind of don't know what they're missing, but some of the greatest Brazilian artists are there and in, in guitar, it's, you know, it's an embarrassment of riches. The first year I went, Paolo Bellinati was there teaching, you know, and you could be a beginning guitar student and he's just like showing you a chord or you could be like a great classical guitar player and, you know, and he's giving you the real stuff. And then uh, the next year I went, Gingo was there and he's kind of my favorite, you know, this guy, Alessandro Panetzi, who is a ridiculously burning seven-string player. Like, you know, one of the top five easily. Uh, He's there pretty much every year now, and it's pretty awesome for guitar players. checked out much Ginga music a little bit but I would actually love to have a suggestion I mean what's so special about him he's some of the things that are great about Villa Lobos uh-huh. you know how he has a, an amazing balance in his guitar works of things that are obviously just built around the guitar's layout and it's almost about where your fingers go and then melodies come out of that yeah and you get incredibly original and yet guitaristic music at the same time he has like all of the romantic chords and the you know the obviously it's not just built around the way the guitar looks but that's just another dimension that's in the music that makes it kind of special for guitar Mm -hmm. ginga has that he has an unbelievable vocabulary of sounds that basically he transcribed from listening to ravel and stuff so he has chords on the guitar that none of us have ever played because he figured out a way to get this specific chord from a specific symphony onto the guitar neck and it looks crazy like his thumb is on the top of the neck and you know he's got open strings in there to make it happen so he comes up with these chords that none of us ever play yeah but then on the other hand he has a lot of melodies that come out of shapes that as you move them around and move them on different string sets the intervals change or you combine them with an open string and as you move it around the intervals change as a guitar player, it's just really fun to play his music. Your hand goes into places that it's never been. And then also you find melodies that you never knew were in like the simplest of shapes. Um, and then of course, you know, his, his music is very groove kind of oriented. So the just the rhythms are just really hypnotic. So give us a little example of that pattern oriented melody. So for instance, if I had a pattern like this, so it's this shape. So four, two, three, one, frets are four, three, three, one. And then you move it to the next string set. 
and it ends up because here it sounds like a minor chord in first inversion. Now you go like this, and it sounds more like this is the root note, and it's like kind of a major seven six chord. But then the next one, and then. So you get these kind of different chord qualities out of the same shape moving, and then when you build a melody out of it, you get this really nice melody that's kind of, it has like a thematic unity partly that's coming out because of that shape, but then you play it on a flute or a saxophone or a clarinet, and it's just like such a beautiful original sound. And they don't know that we're just moving that fingering yeah, <laughs> right? up the neck. And that's, you know, that's a testament to the composer, you know, because yeah. uh, it's not like that's cheating or something, because he still had to choose it, yeah. you know, that that was the sound he was going to go with. Yeah. Um, but I just like his choices. And every time I learn one of his pieces, I'm like, yeah, that's like perfect. That's exactly how... I would have done this if I was a great composer. <laughs> I was a genius. And he's a, a dentist by day? He was a dentist by day. He's retired from that now. Uh. But uh, so, you know, I met him at Brazil camp and then um, I took the step of learning as much of his music as I could before I met him. And most of the people who were there at Brazil camp didn't actually know who he was mm. or and hadn't at least taken that step to learn a bunch of his music. So kind of through that, I was able to forge kind of a special bond with him and he became a mentor to me. Um, and when I went to Brazil, I, you know, hung out with him. And uh, one of the days I was hanging out with him, I was actually at his dentist office. I was just in the waiting room. Yeah. like hanging out with his patients and most of them were like musicians and stuff oh really <laughs> but he would be in the other room drilling and talking and then he would come back and show me some stuff and then i was in the waiting room just kind of practicing you know he showed me some new pieces that then ended up on his next album uh. but it was cool because i was out there performing them before he'd even recorded them <laughs> cheating again yeah and didn't he write one for you or something he did, yeah. So on that same trip in Brazil, he invited me to perform with him at one of his shows, and he wanted me to play some American jazz. You know, so I ended up playing this Mel Torme song called "Born to Be Blue." And clover being green is something I've never seen, for I was born to be blue. But he really liked that song, and he really liked the way that I was singing and playing it. So at our sound check, he had me play it for him like 10 times. Because he was all done sound checking, he just liked that song. He was like, again. <laughs> so anyway, after I did that, you know, six months later or so, he came on tour through San Francisco. And I went to the concert, and there on the program was this song called Capital. And it says in the liner notes, Ginga wrote this song for this California guitar player named Capital. <laughs> and so I <laughs> nice. went backstage and talked to him about it. And he told me that he wrote that because he was kind of inspired by my Born to be Blue. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But it was super cool because, you know, a couple years later, Marcus Tardelli, who is yeah. a ridiculous, you know, Brazilian technician and artist on guitar, he recorded Capital. And then it ended up on Ginga's next album, too. Oh, that's awesome. And then uh, we, of course, put a version, our own arrangement of that song on our new album, too. So tell me if, if you know, you've never heard Ginga before and you want to get a really good idea of what his, like, the best of Ginga is, what's the tune or two or what's the album that you go and check out first? So, yes, Sheo uh, Gidedus, which means full of fingers. That's an incredible album and a really good place to get into his music. Um, the guitar is really front and center in the mix, and it's got a nice variety of vocal and instrumental tunes. Like Capital mentioned, his latest project has his arrangement of Ginga's song, which was originally written for Capital. This latest group is called Bossa Zuzu, and the album is titled Under Leaves, Under Sky. We'll be hearing several tunes from this CD today, which is about to be released in just a couple days. Here's Capital to introduce this first tune. So I made an arrangement for guitar, flute, and clarinet. It was a very kind of nerve-wracking arrangement because it needed to be really pure and really special. 
I wanted to preserve exactly what Ginga's idea was, and he wrote it just for guitar. So anything I put on top of that, I had the potential to kind of enhance the idea or to take it in the wrong direction. So I was really careful with the flute and the clarinet parts, and I kind of agonized over it. But as I put the time in and like made a lot of changes as I went, um, we found something that I I think achieved it. Like I think it's exactly the way that Ginga hears it, but at the same time, it's kind of my take on it, and I hope he won't be disappointed. <laughs> So I'm hanging out with Capital after we've just met and he picks up the phone and it's like a separate person comes out as this stream of rapid fire Japanese comes out of his mouth. So as we transition into talking about Capital's experiences in Japan, I'm going to go ahead and have him announce the show again. Domo Capital desu. All Strings Considered desu. You're in the Bay Area for eight years and what made you finally what was that thing that allowed you to finally head over to Japan? Well, um, basically, you know, there were two aspects. One was that I broke up with the, my kind of longtime girlfriend at the time. I mean, she broke up with me. I got dumped. So I, could, <laughs> I had kind of a, you know, I, I could leave town without feeling like I was leaving behind, you know, like those kind of strengths. Like you were rupturing some sort of connection. Yeah, so that she kind of gave me the freedom to do that. And then also... I loved the Bay Area music scene very much, but I also had a sense that for me, it wasn't the final resting place. You know, like I didn't want to, I didn't want to be there doing those same gigs, making that same money for the next 30, 40, 50 years. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I have friends who are still doing that. And I had friends who were older than I was who are still doing that. And everybody's happy. And I was happy too. But I also had a sense that I was kind of up against the ceiling with what I could do in the Bay Area. Like it wasn't going to get much better mm -hmm. than the gigs that I was doing and stuff. So I had sort of had my sights set on moving to Japan anyway. After so many visits there, I knew I wanted to go there. And it seemed like Tokyo was a really vibrant music scene. So um, I took kind of a series of trips one year where I would stay for like three months at a friend's house in Japan um, and try stuff and try to build some music connections. And I was able to do it, you know, and in the end, I just decided, you know what, I'm going to go for it. I moved over. I went to immigration and I was like, this is what I do. I teach music. I play music. I record music. I want to do that here. What do I have to do? Mm -hmm. And they said, well, you're kind of in between visas. You know, there's, uh, there's the performer visa that lasts three months and it lets you do concerts. There's the artist visa, which lasts three years, but you're technically not allowed to do concerts. You're only allowed to kind of like create works like recordings and stuff. Either way, you need a sponsor, like a company who can guarantee you a certain amount of salary per month, like $2,500 or so. And so you have kind of your work cut out for you and neither of those pieces really fits your, your, your plan. plan. So if I were you, I would either get married to a Japanese woman or just get a job teaching English. Like okay. the guy at immigration was really matter of fact about that. It was cool. <laughs> he gave me kind of the inside scoop. So I was like, okay, I think I'll teach English. <laughs> And uh, so I found a job teaching English and then by night, you know, I was kind of building my music career. Uh -huh. And it was really, um, really cool. It was, it was kind of easy to do in the sense that there's so many venues over there for every type of music. Like for me, I had come from the Bay Area where there were many great Brazilian musicians, but there were no places that had live Brazilian music every single night. You know, there were a few places that had it once a month or mm. every other week or something. Whereas you go to Tokyo, there's at least like 15 places in Tokyo that have live Brazilian music every single night. That's amazing. And it's not just Brazilian music. There's that for bluegrass music and there's that for tango and there's that for flamenco. And it's like if you go there and find your scene, there's a lot of live music going on in that scene. Is that a... A Japanese thing to be so fascinated with sort of other cultures musics or or is there just as much Japanese traditional music happening every night there's a lot of Japanese traditional music going on every night too and pop music I and imagine. pop music and I think uh, it's definitely though part of Japanese culture to look outside and find stuff and check it out and get really into it so like what you're saying is definitely part of it I think the main part of it is just they have a societal value that they place on musicianship and live music that it's just worth something to them um, they would gladly in general when if they have the money they would gladly pay 20 30 dollars as a cover to sit in a bar and drink listening to music by musicians they've never even heard of um, rather than listen to stuff being played on an iPod or something. Mm -hmm. So they just feel like there's a value to that. And it's partly, I think, because they have good music education in their um, elementary schools. When I was there, I was a part of a lot of performances at elementary school music festivals where you know I might be with a band who would come in and kind of perform for the students and then the students would perform for each other and for us. Uh, and I was so impressed because first grade up through eighth grade, you know, every class was working on music that was obviously a challenge for them and they did great and students would come from out of the, the choir and accompany the choir, you know, and take turns doing that and other students would actually be conducting fifth cool. and sixth graders conducting each other um and this could have been any style of music or was it primarily classical well it was kind of classically children-y folky mm. kind of sometimes japanese kind of songs or pop mm. songs um i just felt like uh they were doing a really good job of showing the students how much fun music was mm. and how much value music had and how important it was to kind of present it to each other in a special way and I think that legacy of their music education helps them to, when they're adults, 
just kind of understand when they see somebody playing at a professional level how much work that is and and also appreciate just on a personal level like because they have good memories of music and stuff mm. that's all my theory there might be Japanese people listening to this thinking I'm totally wrong and off base <laughs> but compared to the the experience of performing live music in the US I just found in general the Japanese audiences had much higher knowledge of music and musicianship and a higher appreciation for the things that we think are cool like uh, you play a guitar solo in a bar over here and the part where you're going and they're like but we know that that's like super boring <laughs> what I just did like playing a lick and moving up a fret at a time super boring but then you play a show in Japan and someone will come up to you afterwards and be like man I really liked that ballad you did in seven you know all those augmented chords you know just it was, it was so fresh and you're like whoa <laughs> who are you <laughs> they're like I sell insurance so there's so many venues there's so many musicians and uh the way that you get gigs in Japan is basically by going to somebody else's gig and becoming like their patron supporter and then they take interest in you and you play for them and they might feature you in their performance and then the bar owner invites you to do your show there and the people whose shows you've been going to they feel like they want to support you now so next thing you know they come out to your shows and and it builds in a very face to face kind of organic way. It's not a big scene for just mm. like sending emails and press kits everywhere. Like you get gigs at the places you go to and talk to people and sit in and stuff. And it took me a while to build that up. But after about six months in Tokyo, I was playing like 25 nights a month and um, wow. all with different people and it was just all individual phone calls that would come in and then you ended up having a radio show and then yes so when i was uh when i was first teaching english i wasn't in tokyo i was in kind of the countryside um, which is where i found the school that i would teach at anyway i was burning cds every day every time i would go out to places i would just burn cds of my kind of brazilian music demo just hand them out to people. Sometimes if I was performing, I would sell them for like five bucks each. But uh, I got a call one day from this guy who was like, somebody gave me this CD of yours. It was just one I had handed out, you know. And he was like, um, I'm a DJ at the radio station. And it's interesting to me that somebody like you is in our town. We'd love to have you come in and kind of play some stuff on air. So I went in and I played like the girl from Ipanema and some stuff like that. And we had kind of a little interview and then we went out to drinks and I told him I always thought it would be cool to do radio work and we kind of became friends and a few weeks later he called me and was like hey there's a program we might be able to use your help on if you want to come in and so I went in and the program was a program I was going to be the star of <laughs> <laughs> I thought I, could, I was going to help them you know bring waters in for the guests or something yeah. but instead uh, it was like he hands me a script and it's got like me in it <laughs> and so we made in this Japanese? show in Japanese and and also more interestingly in this strange countryside dialect of Japanese a strange kind of a comic concept for a show the idea was to have like a phony language lesson and then I would translate it into English. Like, you know how you have language lessons, there's a conversation and then kind of an explanation. That's kind of a typical format for a language lesson. We did that, but it was with this really bizarre dialect of Japanese. And then I would say kind of strange stuff in English. So we rolled with that for a while. I did that show for five years and it was a sponsored show on FM radio every week. And we actually did really well in the ratings for a while, which was cool. But we started to run out of material because there were only so many phrases people knew in that dialect that we could kind of make fun of. Uh -huh. So to freshen it up for the last couple of years, I was like, well, why don't I turn our conversations into rock operas? <laughs> so every week I would create like a musical version of this conversation and uh we should check some out i mean some of them were very epic yeah can you yeah. describe one or two or what we're gonna play so there was this one that i made that i wanted to sound kind of like dido and aeneas or something okay. like a baroque <laughs> opera um with harpsichord uh-huh and uh we can listen to that one the dialogue that i'm saying is 
Hey, a Buddhist monk is coming. We better prepare some snacks. <laughs> <laughs> and the other person says, Oh, well, I have this sweet sticky rice. Let's use that. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> and that's it. But, you know, I did my best to make the musical like version of it. And, yeah, incredibly epic and stuff. And it's me singing, you know, doing a not such an awesome job. It's singing <laughs> operatically, but doing my best. And then uh, there was the one that I recorded with you where uh -huh. you, Scott, were playing flamenco and I'm again doing an atrocious job trying to act like a flamenco singer. <laughs> but uh, again, it's a totally mundane conversation about, you know, the kitchen or something like that. <laughs> And then somehow Japan brings us to your solo album, which I listened to a ton. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. That was, uh, that was a fun labor of love and... It was time to make that. I had been writing music, you know, from my experiences in Brazil and stuff um, for many years and always kind of wondering when the right time was going to be to record something. And while I was there in Japan, um, I worked with this Brazilian percussionist named Marco Bosco, and he and I ended up with a hotel gig that we did for a year and a half together, five nights a week. So we had an, we had an amazing kind of connection musically. We just you know, kind of knew what each other was going to do all the time, and it made it really fun to play together. And so I moved back to the U.S. in 2008 and started going to USC to work on my doctorate. Mm -hmm. And one of the recitals that we had could be a recording. So I was mm. like, you know what, I'm going to make my album now and have it be one of my doctorate recitals. And so I called Marco Bosco, and um, he collaborated with me on it, and he made these really cool beats because... He's, of course, an acoustic percussionist, and he plays all traditional Brazilian styles, but he's also kind of a rock and roller at heart, and he's also got this amazing knack for, you know, kind of technological drum programming stuff. And so um, I was really happy with the beats that he came up with. So uh, why don't we check out that one, Shoru uh, Seis? Yeah, that's that one that you wrote that's all the sixth? Yeah. Sixth. Do you like that one? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, you can check that one out. So, you know, in Brazilian music, there's this style called choro music, yeah. which is the equivalent of ragtime music. It's, you know, came up in the late 19th century, just as slavery was ending in Brazil. And like, it was sort of um, reintegrating the peoples were get, coming together and the African rhythms and the European instruments and melodies were sort of coming together in Rio de Janeiro in the 1870s. Um, so this music style came out, and and the cool thing about Shoro, which is unlike ragtime, is that it's stayed alive the whole time. Mm. For like 140 years, people have been composing more and more and more and more Shoros mm -hmm. constantly. Like It's a very vibrant scene even right now. So I wanted to compose one, and when I was at USC, I took a composition class, and one of our assignments was to compose something based on one interval. So I was like, I'm going to make a Shoro built completely in sixth. Sixth, so this <laughs> whole thing is like impossible. <laughs> yeah, this whole thing, like from start to finish, it's just sixth the whole way through. I stuck to the rule, but it was fun to make a melody that I thought was cool. And then Marco Bosco put a cool, like, beat on it. I think this yeah. one's a cool representative. Thank you. 
the new album so my band my brazilian band is called bossa zuzu it's named after a lady named zuzu who is a hundred and two year old samba dancer <laughs> awesome and uh, she she had a place called zuzu's cozy where my partner in the in the band here dan record the sax player he spent six months in salvador bahia in brazil and went to you know her venue all the time and would see her dancing the samba so we're kind of named after her we do bossa nova of course you can tell it's bossa nova a lot of times because it's slow and it usually has like a one measure pattern that might sound like this Count it in two. One and two. E and one, two. Yeah. So then we also have a bunch of songs that are more kind of samba. And there's this fine line between samba and bossa nova because a lot of bossa nova, the faster stuff, is basically you're playing a samba rhythm. It kind of depends more like if you have a drum set and acoustic bass, then it would definitely be bossa nova. And if you're playing with percussion and you have like the whole samba ensemble, then you could kind of call the same thing samba. But anyway, that's typically more like a two measure pattern where the syncopation flips to being on the beat on the first half and off the beat on the second half like this. Down, down, up, 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 down, 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 up, 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 for the syncopation. Right. So on the beat, you mean by saying down and up, it's off Exactly. So that's like a song called Laguna Song, one of the first, and Now Da, we have a couple songs like that on the album. Um, we also have some songs in, the, in Northeastern styles. So one called Bayao basically has the bass notes are the second beat of the bass note is anticipated. So instead of going one, two, one, two, it's one and uh, one and uh, dun 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 song on the album called Area that does that and it's a little bit faster and we kind of turned it into a pop thing but again it works really nice so you can hear it going one uh one boom 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 And then there was the style, the frevu style, that sounds kind of like a march. And you can picture the snare drum going. Meanwhile, the bass goes like this. So I made a song for the album called Under Leaves Under Sky that does that. And it also includes a Neapolitan chord. And the chord progression is like this. So we're going to hear all those styles in a few tracks from Bossa Zuzu's upcoming album, Under Leaves, Under Sky. But first, let me say thanks for listening to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories, and by Audible.com. To get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com slash allstrings. There are over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. So can we kind of uh, plug the show and stuff? Which show? The CD release? Yeah. Yeah, please do. This new album, the Bossa Zuzu album, Under Leaves Under Sky, it was really fun to make this. We connected with a great legend of jazz drumming, Peter Erskine, um, and he produced it. He's also, even though he's not necessarily known for Brazilian music, he's very deep into Brazilian music and knows a lot. And uh, 
he gave us a lot of artistic input. It was pretty incredible to work with him in the studio. And then we had a lot of special guests on the album. So Fabiano Nascimento, he's playing seven string guitar and he and I do a lot of kind of coordinated guitar stuff. Mm. Um, and then we had at least two percussionists on every track and sax and flute. It was, it was pretty full orchestration. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were able to track at Tritone Studios in Glendale where they have really nice rooms with great separation and great visibility. Mm. So we tracked six people at a time. Oh, it was live. Yeah, live. And you know, we went in afterwards to add more elements or move this or that or do whatever to the take or something. Uh -huh. But uh, you can feel the live energy on it. I'm really happy about that. It was worth it to go into the nice studio for that. But all that costs a lot of money. Yeah. So we, we raised part of the money by doing a Kickstarter. Uh, we raised about $9,000 with that, which is definitely a good start. Yeah, it was fun to, to have the process be kind of public because we were, you know, getting support while we were going into the studio and then posting videos about what we did that day. It was a really nice kind of interaction between us and the supporters. And it was fun to have so many copies of the CD sold before we'd even made it, you know, basically pre-sales. Uh, so we're now, we've sent all those out, and uh, we also have ta -da, our CD release party coming Ooh. up March 22nd, Saturday night at the Virgil in Silver Lake. We're going to be playing um, with a lot of the musicians on the album and even some more special guests. And uh, it's Doors at 8, show is from 8.30 to 9.30. We're going to play a lot of great music, including a couple of things from my solo album that you were talking about, Floats on Flat Tires. Nice. We'll play some stuff off there. We have some great musicians coming out. Okay, so I hope you can make it to Bossa Zuzu's CD release here in LA on the 22nd. We're going to end with a preview of some of the music on the CD and some of the music you'll hear if you can make it to that show. The first tune is a samba called Laguna Song. The second you'll hear has that anticipated second beat characteristic of Bayao and is called Area. And then the last will be the title track of the album, Under Leaves, Under Sky, in another northeastern style called Frevu. Until next time, it's been a pleasure to introduce you to my friend Capital, and I hope you enjoy these tunes. Acordes no cavaquinho, palavras num papelzinho. Contigo vamos lá, laia, laia. Relaxe e abra a janela, com essa brisa na vela. Amor não pode demorar De noite Santa Teresa Uma festinha que tem laia, laia Quando que vamos pro rio Meu coração tá pedindo já Vamos cantar laia, laia, laia Pipoca lá no cinema Andamos em Ipanema Após a Lapa e o Leblon Dias de sol carioca Água de coco na boca Ia, laia Quando que vamos pro rio Meu coração tá pedindo
papelzinho Contigo vamos lá, ia, ia, lá, ia. Relaxe e abra a janela Com essa brisa na vela Amor não pode demorar De noite Santa Teresa Uma festinha que tem lá, ia, lá, ia. Quando que vamos pro rio Meu coração tá pedindo
bend, twist and pull long Maybe they are the roots Gapless green, wallless ceiling Searchless light runs and bounces on billions of angles Tickles, eyes open, dreams sigh and shut down talked about this talked a little bit about this a little bit about that now let's go home okay and by home i mean lunch. each 